welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. My name is Eric Armstrong, and I'm joined today by Phil Thompson. Hi, Phil. Hey there, Eric. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, we are here to talk today about a consonant. Um, as our listeners who listen frequently will know, we all tend to go back and forth between a vowel and a consonant. And today we are talking about the consonant L, for yeah. lack of a better word. Uh, the fancy term for L is uh, a voiced alveolar lateral. Yes. Yes, those are the right three bits. Um, and there are, there are two versions of the, the so-called L. Um, and we're going to get into that in a bit. <laughs> yes, but before it's a, we, it's a briar we patch. Do that. It's deep, and we're not going to step into it yet. Yes. Uh, so first, let's talk a little bit about this idea of what a lateral is, because a bit different than most uh, vowels. Uh, so vowels, consonants. Uh, consonants. We're talking to consonant. <laughs> um, the 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 lateral consonants are different because of something that the tongue is doing that's radically different than all other consonants. Yeah. Phil, do you want to have a go at what that is? Yeah, you know, we could say about all the other consonants that they are medial, that they go down the middle of your mouth. And we don't say that, and it makes sense. It sort of goes without saying that they go down the middle of the mouth. But with lateral consonants, and there aren't that many, we stop the flow of air and sound down the center but we allow it to go out the sides. Uh, that the, this sideways or lateral release of air and sound is the characteristic of these sounds. But we still describe the sound by the place on the middle line where we're stopping it. So we would have, in this case, an alveolar lateral, which means that our, in this case, our tongue tip comes up and stops the flow down the front, if it were a plosive, uh, an alveolar plosive, we'd build up and we would have sealed off the entire area and then released it, making a t sound. And that's one way of thinking about these lateral sounds, is making the medial plosive, and then instead of exploding down the middle, letting it out the sides. So one way of feeling this in your own mouth... Often I'm, I'm forced to help people to feel things that they've been doing their entire lives unconsciously. So to bring it into the conscious, I like to take the, the idea, um, steal it from other linguists who've been telling other people for many, many years, probably hundreds of years now, <laughs> that the, the idea, the best way to feel this is to do it a bit backwards, to make a, what you know to be an L sound and then inhale. Yes. And as the cool air comes in over the narrow space between the edges of your tongue and uh, the and your teeth, usually, you will feel a cooling uh, as the air uh, blows over the wet surface of your tongue, and you'll be able to identify that open space on the sides where the center is locked down through its connection on the alveolar ridge. Um, that's probably the best way to feel it, and I found that a Many of my students, maybe not 50%, but many of my students don't have uh, an open space on both sides. Yes. Many of them only have it on one side or the other. Um, and uh, as long as it goes out one of the sides, we perceive it as an L. Uh, if you have it in the, the center, 
uh, and free on both sides, it's no better than having it only on one side or the other, but uh, it, it, it doesn't make an acoustic difference to yeah. have that. The only argument against asymmetry in articulation is that it may well involve more muscular effort. Uh, sure. And so th there's no aesthetic reason, or even, as you say, no acoustic reason to be counseling people towards symmetry, but there may be other things going on. Sure, but you know the 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 opposite side of that argument would be that it's perhaps more efficient to only free up one side, particularly if you're doing something like shifting from a T into an L, yeah. where you've got the complete closure and are only drawing one side in as opposed to drawing both sides in. So often there's a flip side of the coin, yes. coin uh, that you know we love to bring up always <laughs> this, the opposite side of the argument. So though. That's the idea of a lateral, and we're familiar with this alveolar lateral because that's the lateral we use in English. Yeah. But there are other laterals made in other parts of the mouth. Can you think of one, uh, you know, as an example off the top of your head that's in a different place? Uh, well, the, the first one that comes to mind is one that isn't actually used in language, but it's a fun one to think about, and that would be mm. a bilabial lateral uh, mm. in which you close your lips and leave some space on the sides. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, send some air out through there. It's something that most people can do, uh, but it's such an effort that it hasn't occurred in language yet. Uh, right. So we could make these laterals by making the closure further and further back in the mouth, mm. just like any of our consonants that involve a closure. Let's say a plosive we could model off of the plosive and say, well, we have a retroflex plosive in which the tongue tip touches the palate and the tongue is bent back. And in the plosive, we say ta and da. In the case of a lateral retroflex, e, 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 we're making la, a little space there. Ara, yeah. Now, there are two components we haven't yet said. We've said lateral, which is the direction, and we haven't mentioned that about other consonants before because we've assumed the direction. We've talked about the place of articulation, or although in laterals we're describing the place of nothing happening. And well, the place of closure, yeah, and that's, 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 that's the place. Thing. Uh, then after that, it's also, in this case, a voiced approximant. Right. An approximant. Now, we've heard that before, uh, I think, when we talk about uh, the consonant R, though we haven't covered the consonant R. <laughs> That's because Very consciously avoiding it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but uh, uh, an approximant meaning a sound where we go close to a place of turbulence, but not quite, so that yeah. the, the, the almost vowel quality is distorted to the place where it becomes a consonant, um, but, but not quite white uh, so going to the fricative place if i can describe the l uh first in linguistics language it's okay. a voiced alveolar lateral approximant lateral describes the direction and so there's a row on the chart of lateral approximants and there's also a row of lateral fricatives as well so i can also break that down into more simple English, uh, this is a sound in which the flow of voiced air 
rising out of your vocal tract is stopped by the tongue tip closing off at the gum ridge, but is allowed to be open on the sides. And the sides are open enough that no turbulence is created, but the particular nature of the sound is recognizable because of the acoustics changing because of the shape of your mouth. And that's mm. one reason why approximants have been called in the past semi-vowels, because vowel shaping is non-turbulent acoustic shaping of the vocal tract, and so are approximants. Right. So if we were to look on the, vowel, the consonant chart, we would notice that there are no voiceless pairs yes. for any of the approximant sounds. Because there's no turbulence, there's no way of making a sound uh, in a voiceless manner. Yeah. We need to have voicing for an approximant to be audible. Yeah. Terrific. If you, if you try to make an approximate audible, you're going to increase the closure, or reduce the closure, if you will, uh, so that the, the, the edge of that surface gets closer to the other surface it's closest to, to cause turbulence so that you can actually hear that uh, uh, approximate as a voiceless sound. And I think that's an experiment worth doing for our listeners to start off making a and then to try to keep the shape the same and just send air through, which I will demonstrate. <laughs> uh, phonetics jokes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you can't hear it. And in order to hear it, you'd have to close the aperture. Uh, I just used the word aperture. Close the hole the air is going out. Uh, or send a whole lot of air through. In which case, you'd be making... And that's a fricative, a lateral fricative, and we're not talking about that yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so, I think we've tackled the, the lingo, right? Yes. And the action of the tongue, uh, at the front at least is a lifting of the, the front edge of the tongue to the midpoint um, behind the upper front teeth. Now, I say behind the upper front teeth, it is possible for some speakers to do a dentalized version and put the L on the back of their upper front teeth. Um, I recall a little discussion a few weeks ago on Vastavox about uh, Britney Spears articulating her L on her upper lip. Uh, in perhaps an attempt to be sexy, um, and uh, uh, that uh, I I have since that time seen other people do it as a means of uh, sort of exaggerating their articulation for an, an emphasis pur purpose on saying something like "that's lovely" or "luscious" in a sort of hypersexualized way very similar to Britney Spears. I can't imagine that they were aping Britney intentionally, but uh, well, that kind of action of sort of showing the tongue on that L yeah. is, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a, a human thing that we do. Well, this uh, it's expressive in some way. particular sound that you're describing, we would have to call a lingolabial sound. Mm. Um, and you can certainly do it, you can show it, and it, it does seem to be sort of tongue demonstration, showing your tongue. Although uh, there is a sense, too, in which it's the sort of thing that infants do, and so it's a sort of infantilized articulation as well. And the intersection of infantilization and sexualization is something that I will leave to Britney Spears and not go into any further depth with. Uh, that 
demonstration, though, as somebody pointed out in the discussion, is a whole lot easier to do when you're not actually articulating, when you're lip syncing or yes. tongue syncing in this case. That if I really want to say love, it's really difficult to articulate with your tongue all the way out of your mouth like that. And so it's easy to do, though, as a sort of gesture of, uh, let us call it, uh, articulatory pleasure if you are not actually making the sound, but just yes. uh, reproducing a visual version of the sound that you've sung. Right. So that's fascinating. I do think that certainly some people on their th and the sounds and also on their L sounds will do a little small advancement of the tongue past the teeth. Uh, we'd have to call this dentalization in the case of this alveolar approximant that it's really a dental lateral approximant. But it doesn't seem to make much acoustic difference, and it does seem to be, again, a kind of a display. I love that. Love it. But you, you, it's inter interesting that you can get the blade of the tongue to touch the alveolar ridge while the tip is sticking out. Mm -hmm. and so acoustically, you can form essentially the same closure with a little bit further back on the tongue so that the front uh, tip of the tongue can stick out. Yeah. The, so we the, wouldn't notice it being acoustically different. Well, that seems to be sneaking us towards this dark light uh, distinction between L's. Hmm. Uh, let me just first say that L, the reason that we have a word for it, a word for the letter, is that ah. it is uh, a phoneme in English. Uh, it's also something we recognize the letter. There's one letter that we use for L. However, in English, there seems to be a variation in how we pronounce that sound, not only interdialectically between your accent and my accent, but intra uh, intra-dialectically or intra-speaker, I make my L's different one from the other. In fact, so much so, and so predictably so, that there seem to be two different varieties, two allophonic varieties of L. Now, there isn't a case in which that difference in sound makes a difference in word, so they're not phonemically different. There's still the L phoneme. But the way they vary is, one, fairly extreme, and two, predictable. And so it's something that, uh, in fact, there's a phonetic symbol for the difference as well. Mm -hmm. So, a clear L, also called uh, light L, is, I'll describe the way it's usually pronounced, the articulation of it, the tip of the tongue closes off at the alveolar ridge and channels are formed on the side just as we've just been describing. At the same time, there may be some cupping in the dorsum or pre-dorsum, the front part of the tongue, and maybe some raising in the tongue, the post-dorsum, the back of the tongue. And so the sound, which I'll demonstrate, is l, l, l. And I can do a very extreme sort of clear version by not raising the back or retracting the back at all. L, 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 l. 
La 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 la. That's the sound that is used in many English accents in initial positions. Anything else I need to say about that before moving to the dark L? Um, no, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. So let's move on to dark. So what what is the distinguishing characteristic of dark L? I would say that uh, based on my own internal experience and the research that I've done, there are a couple of good articles in the Journal of the IPA uh, that describe the distinguishing factor of being one of velarization. That is to say, some part of the tongue is moving towards the velum. It's also described by some as uh, pharyngealization. Some part of the tongue is moving towards the pharynx. And in both cases, I think the part that's moving is the back and root of the tongue. So you could say that the difference between clear L and dark L is that dark L has tongue root retraction. So I'll demonstrate them. Still, I'll demonstrate them both in an initial position. Clear L, la, la, la. Dark L, la, la, la. Now, I'll demonstrate them both in final positions. And I think you'll notice, oh, you English speakers out there, that you might be familiar with one or the other of these. So, in a final position, a clear L is L, L, L. And I'm working hard to not darken it at all. And in a uh, dark mode, it's L, L, L. So, the four of them would be, I'm going to do clear in front and back. La, L. Dark, front and back. La, L. So the darkness is a bunching up of the back of the tongue. Now, remember, too, that if we were to look at this in a mid-sagittal plane, look at a cross-section of the mouth, you would really see this shaping happening. But it's also true that in order to make a channel for the sound to come out, we're also maybe narrowing the tongue, uh, bunching it, using our transverse muscles to make the tongue a little bit narrower but taller. However, we're doing that channel opening both in the clear and the dark position, so that has to stay the same. And I think that the distinguishing characteristic of darkness is about velarization, or probably more accurately described as pharyngealization. There's another feature here that I'll throw in here, and that is, it could very well be that the difference is jaw position, that in a clear position I say, la, 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 and my jaw is more closed, and that in a final position I say, well, I actually did something different there, I'll do it again, well, well, that I'm opening my jaw a little bit, and that's allowing the tongue body to shift back a little bit. Uh, that. That, to me, is not the most salient point, though. For me, the acoustic difference is happening because of the volume at the back of the vocal tract. More volume, more space at the back of the vocal tract is clearness or lightness. Less space back there is darkness. 
Right. So we get uh, a quality that is similar in some ways to back vowels, where yes. the back of the tongue is arched up in a back vowel. And so uh, the overtones associated with a back vowel, like an oo or an o, uh, are similar on the dark L in the same way that um, the bright overtones that we associate with a front vowel, such as an e or an a, uh, might be associated with a clear or light L. So uh, the that, that's an important part of it. I think uh, an interesting comparison is to take the uh, uh, velar fricate, uh, sorry, the velar nasal, mm, and mm-hmm. go from that into a dark L. Mm-hmm. And you'll feel the transverse muscles of the tongue contract to pull the sides of the tongue off the soft palate and make a narrower tongue. But the tongue shape isn't changing that radically. It's peeling itself off the soft palate. But you should be able to feel kind of a thinning of the back of your tongue to make that potential grooving on the outside of the tongue for or channeling for the air to pass along the sides and out on the lateral uh, position. This for me is a transition into the notion of whether or not the tongue tip is an important part of this articulation. Mm. So certainly when I'm doing a clear L, uh, uh, let me try and demonstrate a clear L in which I will then remove the tongue tip from the alveolar ridge. So I'm trying not to move anything else, but you can hear that the vowel quality when I remove that tongue tip is more of a front vowel. Uh, if I do a dark L, that's more of a back vowel quality. But also, I would say the clear L without tongue tip up it doesn't sound like an L. Right. But the dark L without the tongue tip up, that sounds like an L. Can you that, model that for us? Yeah. So I'll put it at the end of a word. Well, fill... And I could even do it less strongly. Well, fill, well, fill. And I'm not lifting the tongue tip up, but that certainly meets my needs for the phoneme L. And there are plenty of people who say my name, for example, is Phil. Phil, yeah. And they don't lift the tongue tip at all. Right. Now, that's different from the kind of L that we hear in something like a Cockney accent, where well, fill when we get some lip action on it. Yeah. But the action of the back of the tongue, probably pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can do an experiment. I'm going to do a cockney fill, and then I'm going to move my lip corners back. So let's see. I haven't actually tried this, but... Well, fill, fill... Fill, fill... I think it's pretty much in the same place. So we could take somebody from... Uh, well, well, uh, I don't know where that's from, Montana. Let's say somebody from Montana. (laughs) Uh, That is a guess. Uh, Any listeners from Montana, please feel free to correct me. Uh, So I'm going to do the Montana versus Cockney, well, Phil. Well, Phil, now Cockney, well, Phil. The lip corner advancement is a big part of that. And I do feel like in the Cockney one, I may be doing less tongue root retraction. 
but again, we're dealing with me modeling it, not a, na a native speaker of that accent. So, of course. Meh. So, yeah, it's interesting because we go to the trouble of describing this as an alveolar lateral approximant. And some of our students may bring a phoneme L into the room that doesn't have any alveolar component and not really a lateral component and just has the back of the tongue going on. Well, and it's even possible to be doing that sort of thing in initial positions. Larry. Hey, Larry. Larry. There's so, more likely to be some tongue tip on initial absolutely. dark yells. Larry. And that's a phonological feature of English. Right. That this distinction between this, ah, uh, here's a cool word, the positional variant mm. of initial and final L is manifest in most English speakers by some distinction between clear and dark or light and dark. That the there's an articulatory distinction between these two word positions. So there's an expectation that when you speak English, at the beginning you're going to have a light L and at the end you have a dark L. Or let's so, put it a different way. You'll have a lighter L at the beginning and a darker L at the end. A lighter and darker. So uh, it brings up an interesting point, too. We've been modeling fairly dark, dark Ls. Yes. Um, and we can perhaps do shades of gray. So we can have light L, uh, and then slightly darker, uh, slightly darker, uh, very dark, uh, very yeah. dark. And so sliding, uh, uh, Perhaps it's better to do it if I lock onto one pitch. Fun exercise to identify the action yes. of the tongue and degree to which you can change your L. Um, I find that that's really important for students to take a step outside of targeting and to do play, to really work the transitional areas. Right. And the other thing that, that uh, I... I that sparked in my mind when you were demonstrating trying to do a, a front light L without the tongue tip and you were coming to a vowel, was thinking about the vowel we're anticipating we're headed to. Uh, yes. So when we're, we're thinking we're going to say li, 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 that may be quite different from the L we might make if we were saying la, 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 la. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, making a bit sound a bit like babe. La, la, la. Um, <laughs> That's a good example, actually, because he had a really dark L. <laughs> he did have a really dark L. That that's something that our my our porcine friends uh, have a problem with is their dark L's. Um, um, yes, uh, uh, who's the friend with the the spider? Um, uh, that's Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web. Yes, and his name is. Uh, Wilbur. 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 Talk about a rat hole that we're going down. Exactly. Now, what's the rat's name? Um, oh. oh, it's gone. <laughs> uh, I'm sure uh, members in our audience will know the name of the rat in Charlotte's Web. Yes. Um, so, um, uh, we uh, uh talking about this vowel that uh, we... Part of the tongue, perhaps the middle and back of the tongue, is anticipating where it needs to be for the vowel that follows the yeah. initial light L. Uh, for Lee, 
the tongue tip has to get down and there has to be a, perhaps a little bit further forward movement, whereas for something like learn, uh, maybe a bit of a drop and then the tongue tip shifting into an er quality. Um, and uh, for something as, as back as if I was doing an RP accent saying law, law, I'm going to perhaps be rounding through the L, law, so that L is actually going to have a rounded component to it. Here's a little amplification of that that my teacher, Dudley Knight, when I was a graduate student, gave this wonderful quote from Nabokov's Lolita. He mm. describes her name, Humbert Humbert describes her name, the tip of the tongue taking a, te- taking a trip of three steps down the palate to stop at three upon the teeth, Lolita. And so what he's describing there in that gorgeous passage is a movement of tongue tip position from lo to li. Now, Nabokov was a Russian speaker, so maybe that influenced it. But I think he was just observing beautifully what can happen. Lolita, la, la, ta. That in that movement, there seems to be some sort of shift in tongue tip position. Mm. So there may be a tongue tip shift associated with clearness and darkness, but we can't say that the tongue tip position creates the acoustic effect of lightning and darkening. That's really a secondary effect of the shaping of the back of the tongue. There was another thing about this, uh, ah, yes, the uh, sort of gravitational effect of post-vocalic L. Hmm. Post-vocalic is a great word, and when we come back around to R eventually, post-vocalic will be a wonderful word. It simply means after a vowel. There are pre-vocalic and post-vocalic instances of consonants. And as we've mentioned, I think, ad nauseum before, the, the vowel and the consonant have some effect on each other, that... Uh, Vowel change historically often happens differentially based on the consonant context of the vowel, uh, as in prefricative lengthening of a to a. In the case of L, those forces are at work as well, and so a speaker, particularly I'd say with a dark L, is going to possibly say a different sound on well or fall, as you mentioned, but they may also change their vowel. Uh, and the example that comes to mind frequently, because I run into it a lot, is the strut vowel when followed by an L. So that the expected dark L on that particular vowel changes it from a more front, more open, more tense position. Uh, I'm going to overshoot this and say strut, dumb. And then if I put the L after it, dumb, dull. And I'm already shifting the shape of that vowel a little bit, but I have students and actors that I work with who will say the word dull as dull. Dull. And even, they might even add lip corner advancement and say dull. Dull. And it, as though it were spelled D-O-L-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, that... I've observed that in the Midwest, and uh, I'll say in the West as well, although I run into a lot of Utah speakers, and Utah is a 
late settled place, settled from Illinois, Iowa, etc. Right. And so those characteristics, Alaska probably has it too, because there are a lot of Midwestern transplants to Alaska as well. Right. We get Canadians, particularly Canadians from Western Canada, who are more likely to say dull. But, uh, you know, there, there are Canadians from all over who will pronounce seagull with a very gull, you know, so it's more mm -hmm. like the name seagull uh, than uh, a, the same bright strut vowel that I might expect from a word like gut. I'd be fascinated uh, to find out whether the same speaker would say uh, gull and cull in the same way as they said seagull, because it seems to me that there's a, a turning that into a syllabic L is something that is happening in the seagull pronunciation that may be different in a word like call um, or vulnerable. My experience of, of, of saying seagull, they, when they take the C off and they talk about gulls, they're, so they're, they're going straight to the L. Gull, yeah, and it's a syllabic L, gull. Ooh, uh, syllabics. We haven't talked about syllabics. Let's, uh, well, we, let's you want to do, do that now? Let's oh, do it. sure. Okay, well, let me tell, do my, my turn. Uh, so a syllabic L... Uh, a syllabic consonant of any kind is a situation where the consonant essentially is going to take up the time within that syllable that is frequently taken by a vowel and a consonant. So the, uh, if there is a preceding consonant, we go straight into this uh, consonant. So the consonant has to have potential for length. It can't be something like a T. It has to be something like a nasal, an M or an N, or easy candidates, uh, or a, a, a one of the L's, a dark L probably, all, uh, that that we can sustain, and it is, uh, it's going to have a vocal quality to it, so you're not likely to lengthen a voiceless fricative. Um, Although you sure make, could. You could, I suppose you could. Uh, pish, tosh. See, I can't do it without a, a little vowel in there. <laughs> psh, psh. Um, so uh, the the uh, the tendency is for these uh, consonants with length and voicing more often than not, and so we get that in something like ambition, where we go straight from a sh into a nasal consonant. Mm, ambition, um, and similarly here, if we have someone who's able, uh, we go from the the release of a B into the dark L, bull, uh, and there's no vowel in there. Some in people way, will it. You, you could say that the L in that instance takes the place of the vowel. There's a vowel going, a, going on from the vocal folds. It's just got this other articulation on top of it. On top of it. Uh, and some people will, will, in their minds, believe that they are putting a schwa in there, a bull. Um, and perhaps if they were singing that syllable, they would make a point of putting that uh, schwa in there or some other similar vowel um, and, uh, uh, and then tag a consonant on the end of it. But singing isn't speaking. And uh, there are some singers, typically jazz singers, who are likely to sustain a syllabic consonant on voice uh, instead of singing a, an open vowel. That's just style. In terms of singing, yeah. So uh, I think that, in, if you were to use the International Phonetic Alphabet, you'd represent that syllabic consonant by putting a little stroke underneath the consonant. Um, it's uh, 
uh, it's like a prime. Um, yeah. That it's a little vertical stroke, and then it goes directly underneath the symbol. Um, so that's a syllabic consonant. Am I missing anything? No, that's ex- that's terrific. It is part of a process, I would say, in English, of reduction of unstressed syllables, and uh, it is a sort of convenience of articulation. If I'm going to say puzzle, I'm already in the z position. Why open everything up for a vowel and then move into this new articulation? By when I say puzzle, 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 I'm simply moving from friction at the alveolar ridge with the tongue tip z, to this little shift that opens up the side channels. It's the most efficient movement from one to the other. Now, there is, there's a related thing to syllabics when we're talking about L's, and that's lateral plosion. Mm. So with Z, I don't have a problem because there's already a stream flowing. I'm able to simply make more close contact with the tongue tip so I shut off the buzzing of the Z. And in that process of closing off the middle line, I'm also opening up the sides, but the voicing stays the same. Everything else stays flowing out. In the case of Pud, bottle. A bottle. Uh, I'm going to keep. I'm going to make it uh, uh, puddle so that I'm puddle. clear about okay. it being voiced. Uh, the voicing continues. Puddle. It is certainly possible to say puddle, and to go from the closure of the uh, the plosive, or rather closure of the stop explode it open temporarily into a vowel and then reassert the tongue tip on the L, puddle. But to make it syllabic, we'd have to say puddle. So, in that instance of moving from complete closure and buildup of pressure to letting the air out into a lateral, the direction of explosion is lateral. And that's why we call it lateral plosion. Lateral plosion describes the way that plosive ploded. <laughs> and if you had a mirror in front of you and you did a lateral plosion, you should actually see a slight popping of your cheeks yeah. laterally as that air pressure releases. Um, and so puddle, it, uh, it, perhaps the air pressure might be a little bit less than in a word like bottle where uh, a voiceless T going into L, we might have greater air pressure release. I think you avoided it saying bottle because on bottle... Going from a voiceless sound into the L, we may have a transition period of uh, a bit of a voiceless uh, um, lateral fricative, um, which yes. is that sound, right? We get that uh, sort of uh, Sylvester the cat. Uh, this, If we've completed our talking about lateral plosion, uh, we could go back and pick up the devoicing of lateral fricatives, or rather lateral approximants, in some instances, and mm. uh, a perfect example might be please, in which the energy of the stop plosive, that unvoiced airflow, delays the onset of vocalization through the next consonant. So if I were right. to slow it down, I'd say please. 
So there's some transition zone often after unvoiced plosives leading into lateral approximants where they are really unvoiced for a moment before they become voiced. Yes. And so we, we actually are doing a slightly different kind of L, this fricative L. Well, it's, sound. I, would, I would argue that we might be, that I might, we might just be. be doing an unvoiced and almost inaudible lateral approximate L, please, please. There may be a devoiced component there, but I may not be closing the stricture of that side channel enough to make it into a fric fricative. Right. And it, it's variable within a speaker, whether I say right. please or please, please. It's a little hard for me to do that consciously. Right. Now, um, yeah. Uh, sort of similar while we're talking about plosions going into L, um, uh, I'm often reminded of the tongue twister about the bear and the bug. The big black bear, bug bit the big black bear and the big black bear bled blood. Uh, and the challenge there is that there's a tendency when releasing from B into L to insert a schwa. So we get big black bug bit the big black bear and the big black bear bled blood. And so uh, going direct from the plosion into the air, into the L, black, black, Trying to make that abrupt is a challenge that people often yeah. need to consciously address. That uh, because the power of the plosion is so strong, perhaps we well, there we are plenty of separated. I I would rather think that the reason that we get these uh, uncalled for syllabics is because of effort. It may be the effort of the plosive, but it may also be the just the muscular effort of the position of the lateral approximate. My argument for this is that we not only sometimes get it in places like black or please, uh, please, please, but we often will get it moving from a vowel into a lateral approximate, as in mm. feel. In fact, I was looking at a YouTube clip. There's nothing so unnerving and fascinating as watching the population of YouTube explain speech sounds because there's an awful lot of variety and I think a tremendous lack of precision. And one uh, lovely and otherwise clear speaker uh, was saying that the difference between clear and dark L was the insertion of a vowel-like quality. And so she described la, light, and feel. And for her, in her description at least, it seemed this way to me, the dark L was composed of this initial vowel sound, all, rather than feel, feel. And it's a little difficult to do, especially when moving from a front vowel in a very high position. Feel to just lift the tongue tip and allow the channels on the side without syllabicizing, syllabifying it. Uh, and that's something that speech teachers will often try to work on, to say feel instead of feel. 
And the, what we tend to feel when we hear that is a, a breaking, that it becomes two yeah. syllables rather than just one. Yeah, we have a syllabic um, L in a position where that's not what we, that's not what the dictionary tells us, <laughs> that it's a one-syllable <laughs> syllable word. Uh, and, uh, you know, if if I was doing, a, a, I don't know, a Sam Shepard play and was saying feel, that would be fully appropriate. But if I was doing perhaps a Shakespeare sonnet and trying to make the meter work, um, it might be something that I, a, an objective of mine to try to make sure that feel had one syllable, not two. Indeed. It also, I think, is a little harder to do as a single syllable. Let's take feel as, as an example. If you have a super dark L, Yes. Because... Because just, just so far to go. Yeah, right? from your arched position of e you might have to encapsulate a schwa in the middle of that. Uh, it feels right. actually like a little scoop of peanut butter, feel. And if you have a clearer L, feel, feel, you don't have that same gesture to, to accomplish. Uh, I think... We may have covered all the bits and pieces. We alluded to the lateral fricative. W would you like to go through the variants of the laterals on the consonant sure. chart? I'm just going to grab a consonant that's, chart so that I make sure that I don't that's a, go astray. I think that's why. So, um, in terms of... Um, shall we just... Make sure we cover all the lateral approximants first before yes. we... Yes. So we talked about the, the light L and then the retroflex L. You gave the example of and that, the, curling the tongue tip back. And I would say that in the box that contains the alveolar lateral approximant, we ought to put both the clear and dark varieties. And mm. let's talk about symbols as we go through. The, okay. the clear L or uh, the light L, I... You and I have some difference in the terms we use. The light L is just an L. <laughs> it's just a, a line, and it may have a little couple of serifs on it, but it's like the L you would have on your typewriter, if yes. anybody had typewriters anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the, whereas the dark L is the same symbol, but with a tilde in the middle of yeah. it. Yeah, and that's a um, rather old-fashioned mark for velarization. Mm-hmm. And so that symbol on the IPA chart actually lives down in the diacritics yes. section. Right? Uh, but it's a diacritic that is usually only used on that one symbol. That's Although right. when we get to R, I may make a plea for using it in a different place. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Hmm. Uh, uh, you can't see us, but we're doing the <laughs> action of uh, Dr. Evil. Evil, isn't that his Yes, Dr. Evil. Um, so, Evil. <laughs> the next one is the palatal, and I'm, I'm happy to be demonstrating this because I did some study of Italian, and this is a very valuable sound to have when you study Italian. Um, if you've studied Italian, you'll recognize the spelling G-L-I, um, it's one of the definite articles in Italian, like the in English, um, for certain kinds of words uh, where the, the word that follows begins with a Z, for instance. You'll, you'll, the article is, is li. 
and uh, that G is is essentially silent. The L of this GL spelling is a palatalized lateral approximate. So to make it, it's very similar. It's closest in structure to the yod sound, the y sound. Mm -hmm. uh, the yod is also an approximant. Uh, the edges are touching on the yod, and the center of the tongue is close. On the uh, lateral approximate in the palatal position, the center of the tongue is touching, but in the center of the hard palate. So this is often difficult for people to make the first time, and they tend to make li. So they slide from l into an e articulation and not actually make a yi with the center of the tongue. Um, so if you were to open your mouth and tap the tip of your finger right into the the, the center part of the part part of your tongue, you can see uh, that would give you a sensitive part that you could feel and just stick that to the roof of your mouth and send the sides of your tongue the sound sideways e e and then go into e e uh, you'll find the sides of your tongue have to kind of push outwards to go into the e because it's a central sound um, and typically e in italian goes into e so you get e most of the time it's the most common uh, but if you think of uh, that uh, sculptor uh, or painter, I can't remember, is he a painter or a sculptor? Modigliani, uh, Modiglini, as they used to painter. say in an ad, I remember from my child. Painter. Yes. Okay, Modigliani. With the very, oh, very long, elongated torsos. I, I, I think he also did some sculptures. Very long, elongated. It was, that was his thing. Very tall and thin. Uh, Modigliani, you, that G-L-I in the middle of his name, should have a E in, in it, uh, a palatal approximate. There's only one other uh, approximate, and that is the, the loser Eric, let one. me it's the, interrupt you and, oh, and go back a little bit to the... To the palatal? Yeah, because it's obviously a feature of Spanish as well. The, oh, the double L in ellos and in uh, llama. And wow. it's a way of sort of keeping track of Spanish dialect variation, because some speakers do make that distinction. They say... Ellos, and others use a full palatal approximate, ellos. Uh, in Argentine Spanish, it's ellos or even ellos. So uh, that the way languages deal with palatals is an interesting question we may have to come back to. But mm. a lot of folks, like in situate instead of situate or issue or issue are doing some sort of yod coalescence and there seems to be a similar thing going on in terms of this lateral palatal in in particularly in spanish. spanish and it's a language that covers the world and so you find a lot of variations in it cool okay so moving yes, on please. to the velar uh the velar approximate lateral approximate is of course made on your soft palate uh, and so we have to get a connection. That connection is going to be similar to the connection of uh, velar nasal, but there's going to be channels on the side to let the sound out. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, so uh, there has to be contact oh, in, on, in the back, and frequently people trying to make the sound won't make contact. Uh, and so they'll just do the sound that you and I were modeling before. Phil, yeah. Phil. So to actually get 
that contact in so the So that you can have lateral, tricky. approximate Hold. space there. I, I'm making little gestures exactly. of big circles. Feel. Right. So, um, yeah, running back from front to back, uh, let's see if I can do this. La, clear L. La, dark L. Uh, la, 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 retroflex. Ya, uh, nice. ya, palatal. Ya, ya. Nice. <laughs> uh, that's a very muddy version oh. of oh. the velar yeah. uh, because it's not one that I do very often and so oh. it's hard to model. That's all of them, yeah? Yes, that's all of the lateral approximates. Um, now, it's interesting. You know, there's the, always that thing about the IPA chart that if the box is grayed out, you can't make a sound there. But if it isn't grayed out, but there isn't a symbol, the assumption is that you can make a sound there. So the uvular box doesn't have a symbol, but it's white. You could make yeah. a uvular Whereas you might throw a up pharyngeal lateral approximant is not possible because there is no, no sides to go out there. A glottal lateral approximant is not possible. There are no sides there. No sides to go out. Yes. Okay, so that leaves only the lateral fricatives to talk about. And those are a little interesting because the only symbols the chart has is under the alveolar column. So they, as a fricative, of course, we have turbulence, so we can have a voiceless version. So we get the sideways sound and the voiced version. So symbolically, we haven't really been talking too much about uh, the Let's symbols. run through the lateral uh, approximate symbols. I preempted that. So clear L is an L. Dark L is an L with a tilde. The retroflex is an L with a little backward-turning hook on it, like many retroflex symbols. The palatal is a lambda, so it's an upside down Y. Yeah. Uh, then the uh, the velar is a capital L, or a small, small capital, capital L. L. Yes. Okay. So now lateral fricatives, we get one of my favorite yeah. symbols, and uh, it's called the belted L, and it's an L. It's a bit like the way some people make an and sign. So it's a tall vertical stroke, like a regular L, and then it has a little loop around. So if you were drawing it by hand, you might start at the top of the L, go down to the bottom, bounce back up halfway, then make a loop in the sort of uh, top quarter of, a, of the clock, and go across as if you were, um, I don't know, making a lowercase e or something. Yeah, it looks like, uh, to me, an L that's moving incredibly quickly. And so it has a little exactly, and that makes that little sound. That's a silly way. And and that uh, that consonant I always associate with Welsh. Yes. Um, that the LL spelling in Welsh is associated with this voiceless lateral fricative, and so if uh, a name like Lloyd would have been in Welsh pronounced Floyd uh, and Llewellyn. Uh, is written by Shakespeare as Flewellen because that was his way of indicating the funniness of that L, an F and an L together, uh, which I think is a nifty trick, but it is not an accurate description of the articulation. Right. Um, and you, you have to think that Shakespeare would have encountered a lot of Welsh Indeed. speakers 
being from Warwickshire, which is so close to the Welsh border. Um, the other symbol we have to encounter is the voiced version of this alveolar lateral fricative, and that looks like an L bonded together with an ej symbol. So that's the sound of j uh, in French, jaja, the name jaja Gabor, rouge. Um, so that's a script Z uh, for those of you who, who are playing along at home. Um, and if we combine those together, the sound we get is z. So uh, again, it's an, uh, like an L uh, shape with the tip of the tongue, fricative on the sides, and it does make a sort of a Z-like quality. And if one has a lateral lisp, one is likely to say Z words like zoo as zoo. So perhaps that's part of the root of this L edge combo. Yeah, it, it makes a certain sense. There is some buzzing going on there, and it's similar to buzzing that we hear in a, in a similar sound, the zh sound. Well, Eric, that seems to me to have encompassed everything we need to talk about. Uh, there may be things that we uh, have left out, but... That's what email is for. So our vigilant uh, listeners will perhaps email us and say, as somebody did, why don't you talk about this? And uh, so we may very well need to do a Merry, Merry, Merry episode because we were asked for it specifically. And if there's some aspect of dark L's and clear L's and uh, the, the range of laterals, that we haven't made clear or that's a particular point for you as a student, a speaker of English, or a teacher of speech skills, let us know. Yes. I, I think one thing we didn't talk about that you and I talked about pre-show was the intervocal. Ah, see, see. And uh, that the, there is a possibility that people will think of intervocalic L as being at the end of the preceding syllable or at the beginning of the following and syllable. And because of the clear, and, dark distinction, we're going to treat pre-vocalic and post-vocalic L's differently. Right. So uh, that can lead to a, a word like feeling, coming out more feeling, feeling with a dark L or feeling with a lighter and, L. And depending on your accent, one is going to be more appropriate than the And you could cut through that problem for a student by saying, break the syllable here. It's fee followed right. by ling, not feel followed by ing. Yes. And uh, generally we're teaching people to say fee followed by ling uh, because there is a preference, I think, in our, uh, for a, a lighter, clearer L going into ing yeah. rather than a darker I think one. That there is a, a mild bias against. The you bring feeling. up an interesting point there, and one aspect of it is that uh, in linking L situations, I just made that up. I think oh. uh, we'll talk about linking R in the promised R episode. But if postvocalic L's are made without tongue tip raising, and even in the case of a Cockney speaker with lip corner advancement, well, fill milk. Right. then there may be a circumstance in which the L is darkly articulated, but then you need to begin another word with a vowel. So, fill is, fill is going. And 
partially for reasons of articulatory clarity or just the convenience of being able to touch something in that stream of vowels. Cockney speakers who say, well, Phil, will tend to say, well, I, Phil is. Phil is. I, I don't think they have any trub, trouble converting that dark L into a light L in the same way that they're they, using light L's at the beginnings of words. Exactly. So why they they can flip it? They can flip that switch in the same way that they can flip the switch for an and, R. Uh, yeah, I fear I'm going to yeah. be. I fear on and put the the consonant R on the beginning. And of so the those R. links so are that, articulatory conveniences. It seems to me. There's some sort of underlying phonologically motivated or just articulatorily motivated change in sound because, well, here's one example. If I said, Phil is, that I might begin to hear a W at the beginning of the next word, and that would be confusing, yeah. uh, whereas it's not confusing at the end of the word, Phil. I'm not thinking that there's a W there because there aren't any words in English that follow that pattern. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if I'm saying feeling, uh, I might say feel, but I'm not going to say feeling. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like fee-wing, and I need, I need a consonant L there. So uh, for people who do that, it's very obvious. But uh, people who have retraction, feel, feel, uh, feeling, they may actually do an intervocalic L without tongue tip. But I think that's pretty rare. You bring up this. I think, think it is. I, the substitution of W for L, to use the letter names, is something that we would probably call speech impediment. Uh, that it's something that is about the individual's challenge with language, not a particular accent. So someone who had trouble with the L's, and I guess there are R's as well, uh, might say, uh, <laughs> fee wings, uh, or, and, and this person who has difficulty is often a child and children, uh, develop expertise in L and R later than they develop expertise in other sounds. So it sounds babyish a little bit to make that W substitution. Um, because we hear children doing it. And there aren't, I can't think of any accents of adults that don't do this linking. So you can drop those L's all you want, uh, even in accents where post-vocalic L's are almost completely dropped, and I think of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, well, uh, they tend to do it when there's a following consonant, like code and woof. But in an accent that dropped that L or did a very uh, weakly articulated post-vocalic L. I don't think we'd hear that same person. Well, in the case of feelings, feelings, yes. Uh, Sorry, yes, they yes, would well, say you're feelings. Talking about it. You're saying that you have students who say feelings. Uh, they, they tend to have at least a little bit of a alveolar contact, feelings, feelings. So that they that they actually have, so my students actually don't go so far as to lose the tongue tip action, um, but they might still use a dark L in that context. Feelings. And feelings. so what what we're saying um, here is that you, as a speech teacher, prefer the clear L in that context. 
That's right. Yeah. And I, I perceive a bias uh, in the industry against feelings uh, that generally people would prefer feelings. Yeah. I... But that, that may be my own bias that I'm projecting onto the industry. Um, and perhaps younger folks will not have that Well, this that brings us to the bias that you were mentioning in speech teaching in general towards clear L over dark L. The, the idea being that all of your L's ought to be as clear as you can possibly make them. And the term clear tends to sort of bolster that idea. That Yes, and to be honest, I have to say I'm very surprised that you use this term clear. <laughs> it just doesn't sit well with my image uh, of you. Yes. That it falls into that idea of speech clarity, which you and Dudley have spoken so much against that, um, you know... It's an intelligible elf. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I should expunge clarity from my vocabulary. Uh, and, and in no way am I trying to imply the judgment that, that you are reading into it. However, it's habit. Uh, it's habit. So, yeah, this light um, elf. And uh, light there elf. is a bias oh. towards it in speech teaching in general. And, and I have a theory about that. And that is strongly retracted tongue roots and the use of a dark L in all circumstances, I'm trying to create the oral posture, but... Very good. Very wonderful what you're doing. And that's going to interfere with intelligibility because of the constriction of the oral posture. It's a little harder to make distinctions because you've got your tongue tied up there. And so there is a value, uh, and there are... This is something that Dudley and I teach... There are a set of speech choices that are useful for their impact on oral posture that one might want to be the master of. And so making your L's lighter. See, light seems to me like weakly articulated. Making your L's... Uh, no, it's full of light and sunshine. As opposed to those dark, dark L's. Dark and evil L's. <laughs> you can't escape judgment words, I guess. <laughs> Pink L's. Um, um, I, I, you know that uh, dark, uh, dark is powerful and rich. That yeah. you could call them rich and impoverished L's. Um, <laughs> yes, thin L's. How about that? Um, so yes, yes, and, and thin and heavy set. Now L's. I'm not as familiar um, so. with Skinner's approach. Is the clear L given as a requirement in post-vocalic positions? Well, it, you know, in Skinner's text, she doesn't even allow for the symbol. It doesn't exist. Uh, all L's are the same, represented by the same symbol, and there is an implication that, the, the, that some people make a dark L and it must be eradicated that it must be turned into a light L. And I have worked with clients, uh, professional actors, who are recent graduates of some program somewhere where their teacher has taught them to, particularly when doing RP, to use a light L. And so they sound very odd because they're doing RP with this, essentially, an Irish light L. And so suddenly they're swimming in the middle of the Irish Sea 
but only for well, one concert. Well, the thing. If, we, if so, we make these rules so universal and so general that either our students will be clever enough to actually listen to what's going on and they'll get out of the problem, or they'll be locked into their phonemic interference that we've created for them, and they'll say, no, yes, we, exactly. I did have an actor... You told me all else have to and, be light. And so I'm dutifully so, executing it and unable then to hear actual English people. I'd say that this is a difficult sound for people to hear and to self-assess about. Uh, you, mm. you brought up Irish L's, and I guess we haven't talked about that. Uh, variation in post-vocalic L's in the British Isles. Isles. RP. Well, fill, well, fill. It may be lighter than my post-vocalic L, but it's certainly darker than an initial L for an RP speaker. And certainly on a back vowel like yes. full, it will be a very yes. dark L, really. Us. Yeah. So perhaps a greater contrast between L post-vocalic L after a front vowel compared to post-vocalic L after a dark So the back sentence, vowel. well, Malcolm will fall. Well, Malcolm will fall. There, there is a little bit more frontness, uh, a little bit more lightness, but there's variability based on the vowels. Well, mm. Malcolm will fall. There may be a similar variability in Cockney, but that L is very much velarized, very much uh, tongue tip down. Uh, and I would probably even put a thumbtack symbol under that to indicate the tongue tip is lower than we would expect it. Uh, although J.C. Wells will transcribe that phoneme as an O. Wow. Yes. Uh, and then there's the corner advancement, which is why Wells is using the O, because he's saying it's identical to an O sound. So that's Cockney. Right. An Irish well, Malcolm, Malcolm will fall. Malcolm will fall. There's definitely l, fall, fall. The fall. energy of the tongue tip contact at the front seems dominant, and there is less retraction, bunching, raising happening in the back. But I think Malcolm fall, fall. I, there may be some effect of that vowel there. Uh, mm -hmm. Then if we think about Scots, the L is retracted and it may be even that there's even retroflexion well malcolm will fall well but no or at least the the contact point might be a little bit closer to the the yeah. turning point of where your alveolar ridge becomes but the real path. work of this sound is being done at the back in that l it's velarized very strongly velarized yes. right and on on initial yeah. l's too to some degrees well, right so Light, light and lovely, we're getting that. So that's interesting. I L. then would say the difference between, let's say, a Midwestern and a Scottish L, 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 is about the direction of motion of that back of the tongue. This is, I'm observing this in myself at this moment. It could be completely inaccurate. But I do feel like in the Scots sign, there's more like, velarization and in the midwestern to western american version there's more pharyngealization more retraction huh, interesting but again i think it's a question of degree of just how far into that midwest or western l you're going to go 
right? Because there'll be some people with extreme. Exactly. If you want to go July, to then... L in a handbasket, then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a uh, setup. Sad, setup. But true. Delightful. Well, we did manage to find a ton more things to talk about, even though I was trying to end the episode at the hour mark. <laughs> uh, we seem to have gone a little bit farther, but that's delightful. We had more to say. Uh, there, there are other languages with L distinctions. Uh, Turkish apparently makes a very similar clear dark or light dark distinction to English. Uh, and it is phonemic only in the sense that uh, the dark L occurs in loan words and not in native Turkish words. Albanian apparently has a fully phonemic difference so that you could have a word that is different in a minimal pair only between the darkness and lightness of the L. And I will make up a word because I don't know any Albanian and say that the word is ale. Ale, 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 and that I I have a student who is Albanian, so I should ask it. Uh, And then there are other languages that make this distinction. Catalan apparently has a dark and light distinction in their L, but it's not phonemic. It is a positional variant or an allophonic variant. Uh, However, the literature that I've read on the subject is a little bit fuzzy about describing exactly what's going on. And I do want to point out the article that I emailed to you in the Journal of the IPA, if I can remember the author. It was really the most delightful explication of what's going on. (laughs) I sent it in, in an email to you. Here it is. Here it is. This is the Toward Articulatory Acoustic Models for yes. Liquid Approximants? Yes. Is that the one? Uh, so what journal was I this I thought in? it was in the Journal of the IPA, just from the formatting. Okay. Yes, it does look like that. But it may, it's uh, copyright the Acoustical oh. Society of America. And who's the author? Um, the author is uh, Shrikanth S. Narayanan. And a beer, a all one. That was very bold of you to um, pronounce those. I appreciate that. Uh, and also Catherine Haker, H A K E R. And they're so, like Baker, but um, and this is H. a two-parter. It's about liquids, I guess, is the way they've described these sounds. And R is the other one. There's a part two about R, which you and I will be reading before the R episode. I imagine. So they've used MRI and uh, electropalatography. And uh, uh, that looks sort of like a a retainer with little bits of metal so that it can sense where your tongue is when you touch. In the old days, they used ink to see where your tongue touched the roof of your mouth. Or charcoal. They would. Put a burst of charcoal powder onto the roof of your mouth, and then you articulate a, a, a sound for them, and then they take a picture of the roof of your mouth. Uh, lots of good pictures of that in uh, some of the texts yeah. by Latifoged. If you're interested in Although the history electi- of this stuff, electropalatography is not so useful for the the part that we're talking about about the distinction between clear and light. 
rather <laughs> clear and dark or light and dark, uh, because, and I think the conclusion of this article is that it is more the shaping of the back of the vocal tract that makes the distinction, and that there's a lot of variation between right. speakers, and these were all American speakers, uh, between the positions of the front of the mouth, how much cupping, how much tongue tip raising, uh, all of that varied a lot between speakers, but, but between but may not exactly, have made much difference. the difference between dark and light in each speaker was uh, manifest through a change in shape at the back. Right. And that change in shape could be done by the back of the tongue, but along with that can be sort of uh, coercion of the <laughs> pharyngeal constrictor Coercion muscles. of the pharynx <laughs> is my new novel. To, to get them... Get them to uh, come along, yeah. to help out, to make that space uh, different in order to accentuate that difference. Excellent. Uh, so that's a that's an interesting article to take a look at, and we'll put a link to that Perfect. in the show notes if people want to look for that. Okay, well, I think yes. we should wrap it up there. So if people want to reach us, they can email uh, e- <laughs> email. E- e- Do you email find this, Eric, by the at, way, that uh, when you're talking about a particular sound in class or in these episodes, it suddenly becomes impossible to articulate by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, articulation. Uh, lovely. Um, so uh, here we are at glossonomia at gmail.com, and we'd be happy to have questions from you either in audio format, perhaps you can send us a link to some audio that you've recorded of a question, or just write it out in your email. We'd be happy to talk or hear from you. Um, okay, well, Phil, thank you so much for this. It's been a blast. Likewise. Thumb, thumbs up, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this again shortly and uh, keep the ball rolling. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. Bye. Bye.